I am intrigued when church musicians can say, oh, the theology of Hillsong songs is wrong. Because I go, which Hillsong song are you talking about? Like, I mean, hundreds of writers, hundreds of styles, you know, that are being put together to create these cities. I think what people are responding to in actual fact is maybe this sense of it being a monolithic entity and it's like producing these cities and distributing them to churches. And a lot of songwriters give their lives, literally, like most are not paid. They, you know, participate in Hillsong because they just want to help the church have great music. You know, it's sad if someone sits there and goes like, it's a monolith that really discounts the sacrifice of the individuals that sit there and who give extraordinarily sacrificially. That's Dr. Tanya Riches discussing music from the Hillsong Church, a multi-branch Pentecostal church with roots in Australia. Today, she's joining us to discuss the new book, The Hillsong Movement Examined, You Call Me Out Upon the Waters, a collection of scholarly essays that she and Dr. Tom Wagner co-edited. Tanya is a musician and theologian who grew up in Sydney, Australia's Hillsong Church. She's written many songs, including Jesus, What a Beautiful Name, and she administered the worship band Hillsong United for its first six years. We're delighted to hear from her today. This is Music in the Church. Hi, I'm Sarah Bariza, a church musician and researcher living in Cincinnati, Ohio. And I'm Crawford Wiley, an organist in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. This week, we're talking with Tanya Riches about the new book, The Hillsong Movement Examined. And we're going to follow up on last week's Try This at Church tip to make copies of your service music and put them in a binder to save yourself some mental energy during the service. We got a response from one listener, Kathy, who said that she makes copies of all of her hymn harmonizations and she puts them in binders arranged by tune name. Kathy says, I now have binders of photocopies of 10 different settings of Aurelia that I have used over the years, or 15 settings of St. Kevin, etc. I pull them out and throw them in a pile. And then, I love this, she says about once every three months she pays an elementary school student to alphabetize them for her, and then during the lulls in weddings, she puts them back in her binders. So that's one approach to keeping, I know, I love it. Um, so that's one approach to keeping track of your hymn harmonizations. But something that I use, which maybe reflects my much smaller collection of hymn harmonizations, I don't have 10 settings of Aurelia or anything close to that, but I have a couple of the really big ones, including Noel Rothsorn's really big spiral bound one. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. And what I do actually is in the front table of contents, anytime I get a new small book of hymn reharmonizations, I just write an abbreviation for it next to those hymn names, or I'll write in the margin if uh, Ross Lorne doesn't have his own setting of it. So that way, if I happen to have another version of Aurelia, for example, I know oh, it's in this book or, or the other book. That large volume serves as a reference volume of sorts for you. Exactly, exactly. So that's the one that I pull out every week when I'm planning, and then I can use it as my own little file sheet, as my reference guide. Last week when talking about making copies of music for binders, we were talking about it from the sense of thinking about preserving your mental energy through a church service because you have and to not take- just mental energy, but physical energy. Oh my word, yes. Yes, some of them are so heavy and like the landscape orientation ones. Oh, they're just awkward. They really are. But one thing that I mentioned was listening to sermons and whether or not organists listen to sermons. And I just want to clarify, since you guys couldn't see my face, 
as we were talking, that I do, in fact, listen to <laughs> sermons. That was a joke last week. I actually do listen to sermons. I, you know, at first I was like, oh, that's funny that some folks thought that I was serious that I wasn't listening to the sermon. But then I thought about it. And, you know, in fact, many people do treat a sermon as a time to check their phone. Um, there was a big uh, whoop you do on uh, Facebook this week in one of the church musician groups that I follow, you know, a couple hundred comments about people, whether they look at their phones during the church service or not. And um, I think that is actually important for church musicians, regardless of their own faith or the spiritual benefit that they might receive from a sermon, hopefully you would. But regardless of that, I think that it's important for us to model to the choir and to the rest of the congregation the attention that should be given to the sermon. Currently, and in all of my recent positions, I've been sitting in a place where I'm very visible to the entire congregation. Crawford, for you, I wonder if it's a little bit different because you are in a choir loft, so your choir can see you, but not the rest of the congregation. And you hear the same sermon or would hear the same sermon several times over the course of a weekend, right? Yeah. As a Catholic organist, we have the Saturday Vigil Mass and then the Sunday Masses as well. And so essentially you can get the same sermon three times, but our parish priest is a very talented homilist. So actually, even though for two of the Masses, no one would really be able to see me, I usually do sit and listen to the sermon all three times. Oh, that's right, because the choir is only there for one of the services. Yeah, the choir is just there for the 11 a.m. Mass. So so I wonder from that per- that perspective, that's in a way for your own spiritual benefit, whereas the whole idea of like modeling a certain kind of behavior for the congregation doesn't really apply. Yes, but so it's like two different reasons for listening to the sermon, for paying attention. Yes, yes. Yes. You know, and if, for instance, we had, you know, a few weekends of substitute priests whose homilies weren't quite up to the level of our parish priests, you know, I mean, honestly, I might not feel the same compunction to listen to the sermon. This actually reminds me of a place that I was the substitute at one week. I was in the choir loft with the choir and the choir was quite large, but I was very surprised that multiple members of the choir got up, left, I don't know, got a cup of coffee or whatever during the sermon and um, other portions of the service where they weren't involved. I assume that there were multiple people in the choir who are paid to be there. I was surprised from the aspect of like community morale that the leader of the choir didn't say, no, this is part of your job. You do in fact need to sit here and pay attention. Not in like an onerous way. You may never, ever, ever leave. But yeah, to, to me, it seems like part of the community of the choir and there were people in the choir who were members of the church. I think it reflects on different understandings that you can have as a church musician of exactly what your, I don't mean job isn't just what you're paid to do, but what, what your purpose of being there during the liturgy is for. Yes. And if the congregation can't see you, what does that mean? Right. You know, are you there because you're worshiping? You know, speaking as a practicing Catholic myself, I try to worship, you know, when I'm playing for a liturgy, but I'm also aware that it's a really different experience for me. I don't worship remotely in the same way when I'm responsible for the liturgy than when, say, I'm attending a said mass, Mm -hmm. you know, during the week. And so I think that that distinction that there are different expectations that are being placed on us. We have certain demands of us during the liturgy, you know, a heightened awareness. We're not allowed to let our minds drift off in prayer. We have to be very, very, very mentally present. Oh, yeah. Which is goes back to that idea of the binders where it's, right, yes. you can't drift off during a service. You can't meditate. Right. And so there's a certain... I feel a need for release for church musicians at various points during the liturgy. At least this is my own opinion. I realize there, Mm -hmm. especially if if your choir and the organist are visible, say, in the sanctuary, in that case, there might be a completely different 
ethos surrounding mm-hmm. the choir and the organist's own attitude toward what's going on in the liturgy. But when you're in when you're in a rear choir loft, yeah. frequently you think, oh, I really need you know a glass of water or a cup of coffee or something right now so that mm-hmm. I can mm-hmm. sing mm-hmm. or play or whatever this next bit of the liturgy that's going to happen. And you know, if you need to take a bathroom mm-hmm. break, you think, well, yeah. that's that's fine. Mm-hmm. At least from my perspective, because we're in the rear loft, we're not disturbing anyone. Yeah, but that's different from a habitual thing, right? You know, if if you have to get up and leave, you have to get up and leave, right? But but that's different from just like a habitual. Oh, I get up and I leave during the sermon. I think that ethos can change depending upon the establishment. I know that when I was in the Basilica Choir at Notre Dame, the choir would frequently nap during the sermon. Like we would all get off of the choir risers and go sit off to the sides and just take a quick nap until it was time for us to sing after the sermon. I'm not saying that's an ideal ethos, but I think that there's certainly room for a variety of interpretations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think it really comes back to what do you believe about the purpose of music and the purpose of the choir and the purpose of you as an instrument? Right. You know, if, if the purpose of the choir is to lead the congregation in their song, in the worship, then the question to my mind really arises, how is the choir best doing that? And when is the choir distracting from that? And to my mind, if the choir you know, mentally and physically relaxing during the homily or sermon allows them to sing better and with more focus later on in the liturgy, then I really don't see a problem with that. Whereas if the choir is in the front, and in that case, they would be distracting the congregation Mm -hmm. by relaxing or whatever, then that could be a potential problem. So what do you think? Do you check your phone, leave the service during a sermon? How do you approach things with your choir? Get in touch musicandthechurch at gmail.com or leave a voicemail at 513-580-4282. Next up, our interview with Tanya Riches. The Hillsong Movement Examined is a collection of 15 scholarly essays covering a wide range of issues related to Hillsong Church, including its music. Today, Tanya is discussing music in the church as well as her essay in the book, The Sisterhood, Hillsong, and a Feminine Key, which deals with female leadership in the church, as well as accusations of a so-called princess theology. First up, Tanya is discussing how she and her co-editor, Tom Wagner, approached this project as a critical insider, that's Tanya, and a sympathetic outsider, which is Tom. I guess the best way to describe myself is I'm an Australian who grew up in Sydney and much of my childhood was really about coming a part of Hillsong Church. Which, So I guess I would have joined the congregation in about 1985. I try hard not to do the maths so that people won't <laughs> work out how old I am. <laughs> no, I think it's about 1985. But at that point, it was really a church, a small congregation. By small, I guess I mean a couple of hundred on the, the edge of Sydney, in Western Sydney, and it gathered in a warehouse every week. And so I guess like my involvement at Hillsong grew from there, from joining as a small child. And so I was pretty much in the first cohorts of every ministry, (laughs) you know, like one of the first children to go through children's church. I was one of the first youth to go through youth group. And as like we aged, because I was the same age as Joel Houston, who's the oldest son of the senior pastor. So kind of, you know, they formed ministries as we went through. And so I guess we're really genuinely second generation Hillsong. And so 
that was my perspective. So I started in the music team when I was 14 and I published my first song with Hillsong Music when I was about 16. And that song went on to be quite well known um, and just like a really important song for our congregation. So I guess in that sense, like I've, I'm very much an insider and I've re- I was really very much a part of the United Live band and really involved in volunteering in the church. But as I grew up, I also engaged theological education. And I think as any second generation, anything, you kind of end up having some reflective moments and thinking about the community that you're a part of and so and actively working to change it and improve it. So I guess in that sense, we I really think of myself as an insider and um, really that understanding came from conversations with Tom. So Tom and I connected just after I'd finished my Master of Philosophy degree. So I did my my dissertation on Hillsong Church and that was in itself a huge progression. So I, I got to the stage of doing a research project and I had all these fantastic ideas and then turned up to the Australian Catholic University, which was really the only place that would accept Pentecostal women (laughs) theologians. And so they said, at least in Sydney, (laughs) not internationally, but at least in Sydney, that was definitely the landscape. And so I turned up and they said, look, you know, it would just be really great if you studied your church (laughs) and the contribution that's made to Australian music. And so I just finished that project when I met Tom and Tom was just going into his PhD at Royal Holloway. And so I guess me coming out of that project, you know, and him going into that project, and we both were PhD students, so I was going to Fuller. So I was, if, if I wasn't in Los Angeles, I was headed to it. And so in that sense, I was, had a bit of distance from the congregation because mm-hmm. I got to leave to go do theological training yeah. and I'd been a pastor for a little while. But yeah, so we, we kept conversation throughout that period. So he kind of had a lot of questions that he wanted to ask about my experience of studying the congregation. And I was really interested in some of the questions that he was bringing up. So he was coming from the London congregation. And so we started conversations and, um, and really in that conversation, it really, we realized that we were seeing the congregation from two very different locations. So it was kind of, you know, forming the way that we were talking about it. And we would times, you know, we'd mostly be really intrigued at each other's responses, but sometimes there'd be clashes where we'd go, I just don't agree with you. <laughs> like, that's just not even true. And then we'd go away and we'd come back and we'd think, no, no, that is true. But it's just that we're coming from very, very different spaces. So I guess like anthropology allows for the different locations as the etic and the emic divide. Mm -hmm. And so we really use that as the insider and the outsider speaking in a conversation. So the fact that I use the word critical insider to really indicate that, you know, I have a history and sometimes I speak very honestly about issues Mm -hmm. that I think, you know, perhaps the church needs to change or that we're working to change. You described yourself as enraged at one point. (laughs) Right. And I think that's the, that's the privilege of being an insider is that like my family, this church can annoy me more anyone on earth (laughs) Um, and at the same time deeply inspire me (laughs) and that's why I go you know it's definitely not a group of homogenous people who all think the same on every issue that's for sure and then on the other side I think you know Tom he had a very different kind of way of of dealing with this he really had to given how much opinion there is um, when you enter the field and if any church and you study a congregation you really have to develop an empathy and a, a sympathy I guess we called it in the book but it really is kind of more of an empathy of being willing to listen to the congregation's perspective and to put aside, you know, to bracket, I guess is the anthropological term, your former ideas on what they were and what you think about them and whether you think this is good or bad, but to bracket that and to say, I'm listening to you. And so I think in that conversation between critical insiders who maybe are enraged (laughs) at times and then also, you know, this really sympathetic outsider, there's a real truth that's found in that dialogue. You get the whole picture. 
Oh, I hope so. I mean, I think, you know, and this is where we really, we really try to be quite measured in what we're saying, because I think that the notion of truth is really important to Christians. Um, and we can really find ways to, you know, define what truth is in our context and through biblical text and through the ways that our community reads the various things that we're doing and whether that is or is not true. So I guess in that sense, it allowed us to be fully located, but then also admit that there's this, you know, gray area where not everything a congregation does is perfect ever. (laughs) There's no perfect (laughs) congregation. We all say that, but allowing that when we're doing study of a congregation and allowing a congregation to change and develop and to form its own opinions and actions and to move toward an imaginary or an idea that it holds, all of those things are true. And so I think what we really hoped was that that was captured within the book. Part of the reason as to why we did this book is because we do realize that it's polarizing. Not everyone loves Hillsong. I mean, it tends to be lovers and haters. There doesn't seem to be. I mean, occasionally, very occasionally, I meet someone on a plane or something that doesn't know what Hillsong is, and I I just feel like hugging them, like, where have you been? (laughs) It's awesome. (laughs) That's great. Well, like when I talked to church musicians and I was, you know, mentioning to people ahead of time, oh, I'm going to talk to Tanya Riches about Hillsong. And either people were like, oh, I love this music. (laughs) Or else they're like, oh, it's killing us. Hillsong. (laughs) It's killing the church. Yeah, I, you know, I think it's really funny. Like I was laughing with a writer today about it. It, it really amuses me when people say, "Oh, I like Hillsong's theology," or "I hate Hillsong's theology," and I'm like. Oh my goodness. If you can derive a theology from the amount of products that we've put out and the way that, you know, we do things, like, honestly, you're better than I am. Because I think, like, you know, there's these diverse opinions that, um, and the way that Hillsong's created is that, you know, a platform is given to, you know, people who are trustworthy to speak from what they believe the Spirit is saying. The beauty of Hillsong is that the congregation discerns what the Spirit is saying in our midst. And so that means that we can have people on the stage who we don't necessarily agree with in entire but that we can say the spirit is speaking through this person what does god have to say to me so in that sense i think it's a it develops a community that's really intuitively seeking god and that's really i think why people want to go to church nowadays right like life is so busy <laughs> like there are so many things that we could be doing on a sunday morning or a sunday night it really if if i'm going to put aside time to go to church and i don't just want to hear like someone's thoughts on a topic like i want to meet with god and so i think you know that's Yeah, there's various views on that. (laughs) I think, you know, people who really like very clear doctrinal statements and who may have caught part of that, Mm -hmm. they would say, you know, Hillsong's theology is off. (laughs) And and it really does amuse me because, like, yeah, I think Hillsong, it's theologically evangelical. It's definitely Pentecostal, but it really does believe that the Spirit is illuminating the Scriptures to create, like, a way of us living in this very fast-paced life and in a global world that is becoming quite hard to navigate, really, to be quite honest. (laughs) I think that's not always what people want. I think part of writing the book was really about letting people disagree and saying, you know, I know people pick this up and go, like, um, use it as a way to discredit Hillsong, perhaps, like, cherry-pick out all the bits that, you know, prove their point about the church. My hope is that people will listen to it fully and say, okay, maybe I didn't understand completely. Which is certainly something that I think church musicians need to hear, especially folks who are more inclined to say, oh, I just don't like Hillsong. Yeah, right, exactly. I don't like Hillsong. And I think there is a sound, a Hillsong sound, and I think it's valid to say you don't need to like that. But on the other side, it's like, yeah, and I think oh, like fine. we're yeah. learning more and more. Like, I mean, we also use resources from around the world. So we use, you know, Chris Tomlin songs. We use like, mm-hmm. you know, various songs that, mm-hmm. you know, other church mm-hmm. musicians would use. Yeah. 
but it's it's different to say you don't like a style versus to say to make a more. Yeah, judgment. and I think that is really interesting because I I am intrigued when church musicians can say all oh, the theology of Hillsong songs is wrong because I go which Hillsong mm-hmm. song are you talking about? Like I mean, hundreds of writers, hundreds of styles, you know, that are being put together to create these cities. So and it's like I think what people are responding to in actual fact is maybe this sense of it being a monolithic entity and it's like producing these cities and distributing them to churches and <laughs> they feel like there's this inevitability. Yeah, as if it's this one thing that you have to do. You don't have do. to do it. Like no one has to do it. It's just like, you know, look, the resources are there. A lot of songwriters give their lives, literally like most are not paid. They, you know, participate in Hillsong because they just want to help the church have great music. You know, it's sad if someone sits there and goes like, it's a monolith. Like, you know, I think that mm. really discounts the sacrifice of the individuals that sit there and who give extraordinarily sacrificially. Um, but they can, you know, that's the beauty of it all. <laughs> Coming from an American perspective, when people say Hillsong, they're talking about Hillsong music. Yeah. And that's often how it goes. Like it's almost synonymous. Yeah. 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 So I'm, I'm curious about that history, like how music became so tightly tied up with the church's identity. Yeah. And I think it really depends on where you sit and how you're viewing the church. I think maybe from Tom's perspective, that's definitely why he was drawn to study the church. From my perspective as an insider, I think there's a couple of things that could be said. I think we're a singing community. There's no way that you couldn't say that. <laughs> you know, like every church, we have like musical time in in our services but that musical time has developed an identity and the the songs within that have developed an identity and and obviously now we resource a lot of churches with music in that sense we're very much a singing community and our identity has become tied with that to the point where you know I think the important thing to note though is it wasn't us but I remember I was actually there when we accidentally our church was referred to as Hillsong Church because our church was called Hills Christian Life Center and we had like a congregation in the city that we kind of acquired and so we had like a suburban and an urban location but we we were never Hillsong Church until that was kind of placed on us by external (laughs) and like a Tommy Barnett who was a really really respected pastor by um you know by our congregation called it Hillsong Church by accident and so I I remember Brian Houston coming back I guess a week or so later and just going you know what why fight this what like if we're called Hillsong by the external world and if you know if he's saying that this is something beautiful that we can contribute to, to the church globally cool, let's just change our name. So, um, and I think maybe that shows you a little bit of how many voices, you know, or how voices are engaged by Hillsong Leadership. So Mm -hmm. I think, you know, the fact that someone else really created the Hillsong name is kind of, yeah, that's kind of the story. But yeah, I mean, as far as like, you know, engaging Hillsong itself and as being a part of the congregation, it's definitely not all we do. Like, I think people think maybe that Hillsong is like a perfect land where you know, you just basically have a guitar and sit and sing songs all day. (laughs) From an American perspective, when I talk with American musicians, it seems like they think, oh, Hillsong is is just a person shows up and is fed shiny, polished music for an hour and then goes home. Oh, wow. Yeah, right? Not at all. Like from my perspective, (laughs) I wish that was it, you know, because I think um, actually a lot of the Hillsong ethos is really, um, it's twofold. Like, so worship is really, really important, but also work is really important. It's quite monastic in that sense. Like people throughout... Hillsong are working together for various, you know, working to build the kingdom in various ways. There's lots to be said for the parts of Hillsong that aren't seen by the watching world. So like we have people who are in various parts of the community. So in prisons, in hospitals, you know, working with women who are experiencing domestic violence. We've got, you know, college that is teaching theology. We've got all these different ministries that are not about singing. (laughs) 
So I don't know if that helps a little bit. But of course, you know, I mean, I think the reality is, is that externally, that's how we're known. And, um, mm-hmm. and rightly so. I mean, our musicians and our singers and our worship leaders are some of the most talented individuals and some of the original music, music CDs that kind of were exported to the US, particularly Shout to the Lord and Shout to the Lord 2000, mm-hmm. really framed how Hillsong was seen overseas. Mm-hmm. And particularly like, you know, the expertise of Darlene Czech, who was like a very, very gifted worship leader. Mm-hmm. So maybe our identity kind of got defined during that period of the church. Let's talk about the, a little bit more about the music of Hillsong. Mm. Most churches don't usually produce music as a source of revenue in the way Hillsong does. Like, right. And also churches in general aren't known as sources of musical production, right? Mm-hmm. Except in a live sense. Yeah, for sure. So um, I think Hillsong is definitely this collaborative venture that has grown throughout the years. So, you know, initially it kind of started with a group of musicians who largely were based around our worship pastor, Jeff Bullock at the time, who played piano and just really recording his songs and getting them out to our congregation. And this would have been back in the 80s when there's, yeah. you know, a few hundred people in the congregation. Yeah, that's right. So when I joined, you know, Jeff was on his piano and there was a couple of backing singers and that was pretty much, you know, a good drummer and that was pretty much the band. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think the energy and the um, the positioning and the, I guess, you know, I would say the spirit on Hillsong's music, because I don't think in and of themselves they're always brilliant songs, <laughs> but <laughs> like there was this drawing of these really talented people and so all of them contributed something. And so you have these not only fantastic musicians who've joined the journey along the way, but lighting specialists and sound people and, you know, these creatives that have this range of amazing skills. And then, of course, you also have these business people who brought strategy and who, you know, helped dissipate the music. And I think all of that is Hillsong. It's a community that produces, it markets, it distributes this resource, this musical resource for other congregations, but also for itself. And I think that's a really important thing to note. Like we produce most of the music we create <laughs> um, and then, you know, it also goes to other churches. Do you want to talk about women in the church? Sure, sure. <laughs> So the chapter you contributed to the Hillsong Movement Examined is about female leadership. And I'm wondering if you can talk about your chapter and about musical leadership as a form of pastoral leadership. Yeah. So many churches allow or they don't allow pastoral leadership to women, but then they allow musical leadership to women. But then they talk about musical ministry as pastoral ministry. And it's like this, it's always complicated no matter what kind of church you're in. And so I'm just curious how it plays out in Hillsong. Yeah, probably the journey of this chapter began while I was doing my PhD in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. So I was talking to Ed. Wilmington, Dr. Ed Wilmington, who's an amazing um, lecturer in the Bram Center um, for the Arts at Fuller. And I was just, I, you know, I moved to the Los Angeles and, you know, I just kind of was free because I wasn't going to, you know, a Hillsong, Hillsong hadn't moved to Los Angeles yet. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I didn't have a congregation that I was really located in. And so um, my husband, Tim, and I were doing some worship leading at various churches and mm-hmm. we were, you know, attending Lake Avenue, which I adored. And then so, which is a huge church. Anyway, so um, I just said to Ed, you know, it's really weird because um, I don't see a lot of women worship leaders in Los Angeles. And he said to me, he goes, look, Tanya, <laughs> you're, you're right. He said, I think I'm estimating about one woman to 10 paid men worship leaders in Los Angeles. So I was really shocked at that, right? So I'm like, wow. Because I thought, you know, in my context, it just was a given that Darlene would worship lead until we got to the US. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I feel like there needs to be like a bump, 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 bump. <laughs> because this is 
so complicated in the US. You guys, <laughs> what is going on there? <laughs> um, so the evangelical liberal divide is real and Hillsong kind of lives in the middle because it's really, it, it believes that, you know, women are able to participate fully in ministry. So Bobby Houston is the senior pastor of um, Song Church, as much the senior pastor as Brian is. And you are yourself a pastor or have been. Right, I have been, yeah, and you know, I lecture in theology at your song mm-hmm. and to men and women. Mm-hmm. And so I, I outlined some of that in the chapter, like just these really influential women that have been built throughout Hillsong's history and really relate that to um, the development of Bobby as this senior figure that kind of navigates this landscape of Sydney. So mm-hmm. she often draws upon, I guess, more traditional metaphors of how she would talk about herself in the public space. So mm-hmm. especially in the early years, you know, she used to talk about her role as the wife of Brian and talk about, you know, her children and very, very relatable for a woman who say stays at home and looks after mm-hmm. the kids. But then on the other side, she's making all functional decisions about <laughs> church. <laughs> so um, I guess in that sense, like maybe it, it was a little bit of a misnomer. So I guess what I realized is that over the years, over the history, those ways that Bobby was talking was becoming very loud. And so theologians had begun to kind of prescribe Hillsong as being a part of something that was called princess theology. So probably around 2005. Um, and I, And look, you know, I guess maybe there was an element of that. We had a lot of Americans that came over and loved Disney <laughs> and, um, no. and you know, metaphors that they brought. <laughs> and I think, you know, there was a blame really... Blame the Americans. Well, no, I don't want to blame it because, like, I think, you know, at the same time we had a real love of, like, Xena. <laughs> I think, like, the warrior princess metaphor was really, you know, important here. And I don't know, it just became something that, you know, the theologians almost laughed about. And so, so I, when I started to look at Hillsong, I was like cringe because I was going to have to look mm-hmm. at these these women in our church that maybe you know were going to a Thursday meeting and who I thought maybe um, were being like working out how to you know provide organic lunch boxes and goop kind of you know <laughs> trading on lifestyle mm-hmm. you know messages and things like that so when I started to talk to the women I actually found really interesting things so they all had internalized these these kind of understandings of themselves and what it was to be a Hillsong woman, which they were like really embarrassed about. You know, some of the things that came out from those interviews were just incredible. So, you know, I found that women had basically learnt these skills and capacity built at sisterhood in the Thursday meetings and then also the Thursday night meetings for working women. And then all of the relationships Mm -hmm. that flowed, flowed on from this space had just really built capacity. So to the point where people were saying, look, my CEO contacted me. He said, you know, he was really interested in talking with me because he knew I went to Hillsong. He asked mm. for like insight as to how, you know, Hillsong builds its morale and how it like, you know, engages volunteers. And so I had an like, you know, two hour conversation with my CEO and my general manager about potentially tips that they could take that I had learned from my time managing volunteers through the sisterhood. So, I mean, people were saying like that being a part of this community had capacity built them in ways that were incredibly important. Oh, and like literally empowering. Yes, right. Not just not just a feeling of being empowered, but actually like, and then I got a job. Right. It's our desire to be empowered, but this actually was producing that. And it was producing communities of women who were doing these like conferences that had thousands of people. Like these women were performing store, like, you know, in front of like absolutely amazingly astronomical numbers of crowds. And um, you know, yeah, and they yeah. were doing all levels of these conferences. There's something about the way that women are authorized at Hillsong that I think is different to others, other churches in our city. 
And yeah, I just think they, they're able to contribute. So they start really young. You can be a leader, a girl leader, you know, girl and boy, but you can be a girl leader at our church, you know, in, in kids' church. And you were. Yeah, I was. Yeah, totally. And, you know, started at six, seven, <laughs> you know, like built, yeah. built my leadership. So by the time you get to 16, <laughs> you're well and surely capable of speaking on behalf of, you know, the leadership and mm-hmm. you're answering questions about their motives and you, you have relationship. And so, yeah, I think that's a little bit different. And so we definitely don't have, you know, rules around, you know, who can speak in the public space and who can, you know, craft the theology of the of Hillsong by gender line. That's, it's just not, it's not there. I don't. I'm curious about something you said about when Hillsong came to the US and it sounded like, was there a difference and how women led in yeah totally was a difference like one of the things that I think was really interesting was that it suddenly became questionable as to whether Darlene should or shouldn't be leading like so Darlene Check was very much part of our church um her leadership I mean she would describe as really reluctant and so you know for us it was very clear that God had selected a very reluctant leader (laughs) to lead the worship team Um, and so there was nobody in Australia who was discouraging Darlene from taking up that microphone and from you know speaking or you know singing out and leading the church leading the vision of the worship and creative arts department there was no kind of resistance to that and then when when Darlene got into the US there were these questions you know should women be leading worship women could shouldn't wear pants oh that's a big thing was a big thing back in the US <laughs> um, and then it was like should women direct men like should women should should Darlene have a music director who's a man mm-hmm. and she just sing like and I think you know I mean I don't know like she would be the best person to speak to those conversations and how those played out because I was quite young at the time but I definitely remember it being very confusing as in like what do you mean like should Darlene lead our church in worship like that's so self-evident from our perspective obviously that's a really um, real theological debate that many women face in their congregations and, and different congregations have different approaches to how they interpret the biblical text we just definitely draw upon the sense that the spirit in acts 2 empowers you know the whole church for ministry and so if someone has contribution and gift and you know it seems right to the congregation that they Mm -hmm. take the role yeah there's no question as to whether or not they have the authority to do so that's very much given by the pastoral team thank you very much for talking with us it's been lovely to hear about the book oh thank you so much for um, the chat it's an honor Thanks to Tanya Riches for this conversation about The Hillsong Movement Examined, You Call Me Out Upon the Waters, a collection of essays which she co-edited with Tom Wagner. To find out more about the book, check out our program notes at musicandthechurch.com and look for episode 8. Tanya is online at tanyariches.org, T-A-N-Y-A-R-I-C-H-E-S dot O-R-G, and on Twitter at Tanya Riches. If you've enjoyed listening to Music in the Church, please share it with your friends. We are a new podcast, and your recommendations are the best way for people to find the show. Get in touch at musicinthechurch at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 513-580-4282. We love to hear from you. See you next week. Probably not see you next week. We'll be back next week. (laughs) 